Welcome back to another episode of Big Time Dicks, the show where we take a closer look at the laws and lawmakers fucking up your life. I'm Joanna Rothkopf, Managing Editor at Jezebel. And I'm Prachi Gupta, Senior Reporter at Jezebel. This week, Donald Trump's travel ban was blocked by a federal judge, and he released a budget that would completely cut the National Endowment of the Arts. But here's a clip of Trump talking about Twitter with Tucker Carlson. Much of the news. It's not honest. And when I have close to 100 million people watching me on Twitter, including Facebook, including all of the Instagram, including POTUS, including lots of things. But we have, you know, I guess pretty close to 100 million people. I have my own form of media. So, you know, if I tweet uh, two or three or four or five times a day, and if most of them are good, and and I I really want them all to be good, but if I make one mistake in a month, now this one I don't think is going to prove to be a mistake at all. He sounds like a 12-year-old who's constantly seeking validation. Yeah. Levi, our producer, and I were talking a while ago. What if he, he sounds like an idiot, but what if he's secretly, like, encrypting messages within his weird speech patterns? Like, what if he's secretly a genius <laughs> and he, all of his speech is encrypted? And that's why it sounds like that. I would believe it. There's a conspiracy theory I'm willing to get behind, Joanna. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it would require believing that Donald Trump is smart. This week, we'll be talking about the GOP's new healthcare replacement plan with Dr. Kavita Patel, a doctor at Johns Hopkins and senior fellow at the Brookings Institution who worked on the Affordable Care Act in the Obama administration. Part of what's wrong with our society is that we've put so much money and attention into being sick that we don't even know how to be healthy anymore. But first, our week in weenies, special white men being racist edition. You know, because this is our first podcast episode where the theme for our dick of the week is not white men being racist. I know. So we had to include them all in the week of weenies. Yeah. It's a, <laughs> yeah you're so right. This week for our dick of the week, not to, just to give a little bit of a preview, it's more white men being callous towards poor people. Less explicit racism. Less, yeah, it's less explicit. Our first weenie of the week is Representative Steve King from Iowa. He's a Republican representative who has been in office for several years. He has said a number of racist things in the past couple weeks, just kind of piling on top of each other. And everyone keeps being like, this is racist. This is racist. And he's like, yeah, I'm racist. That's not true. Here's what happened. On March 12th, he retweeted an article about the far-right Dutch politician Geert Wilders, who is— Very Islamophobic. Very Islamophobic, white nationalist, far right, blah, blah, blah. And Steve King tweeted, Wilders understands that culture and demographics are our destiny. We can't restore our civilization with somebody else's babies. Number one, that's Nazi talk. Number two, somebody else's babies is clearly talking about brown people and immigrants. So he was allowed to go on— CNN's New Day with Chris Cuomo, and Chris Cuomo was very polite and was like, hey, hey, man, what do you mean by that? And Steve King is like, why is everybody so confused? I'm a racist person. I meant that. I'm not confused. You <laughs> guys are confused. He literally said, of course, I meant exactly what I said. Yeah, and Cuomo was like, no, but you know that sounds racist, right? Because it seemed like you were doing the opposite. Like you were trying to say someone else's babies means you're either white or you're not right. And as you know, that is anathema to what America's all about. Can we get agreement on that? Well, I, I want to, I, here's actually, if you go down the road um, a few generations or maybe centuries with the intermarriage, 
I'd like to see an America that's just so homogenous that it, we look a lot the same from that perspective. He's like, yeah, I'm racist. And so I just want to point out quickly, and then we're going to move on from this stupid dick, that Steve King's racism is not new. People keep expecting him to lose or maybe be challenged in his next election because, oh, all of a sudden Steve King is racist. But that's not true. He's been racist forever. He's a racist person, and people keep elect—Iowans keep electing him anyway. In July 2016, almost a year ago, he said, this whole white people business, though, does get a little tired. I mean, I'd ask you to go back through history and figure out where are these contributions that have been made by these other categories of people that you're talking about? If the, what, Where did any other subgroup of people contribute more to civilization? That's straight up white supremacy. <laughs> straight up white supremacy. There's That's no, literally the definition of There's white no supremacy. ambiguity there. Another thing he said, and then we can move on from him, is in August 2015, so one year before that, two years ago, he, this was about whether or not America owes apologies to other countries for slavery. So he said, Americans are tired of apologizing, Ox. Uh, we're a proud people. We're the vigor of the planet. And there's nothing for us to apologize for until they come and thank us for the things we've done. This dude is seriously just one step away from walking out in his white hood. This is what Steve King is doing with regard to his own racism. He's like, I'm racist, I'm racist, I'm racist. Notice me. I'm racist. Like, t- kick me out of office, please. Yeah, and unfortunately, he's not the only one doing this. Uh, <laughs> oh, is he not? No. We, our next weenie is uh, Kansas State Senator Stephen Fitzgerald, who comes awfully close to making similar statements in that he compared this week Planned Parenthood to both the KKK and the Nazis. Oh. Yeah. So this all started when— a woman donated $25 in his name to Planned Parenthood. And she did so because she was, it was a sort of a way for her to protest this anti-abortion bill that he had uh, sponsored in the Senate. And Planned Parenthood tweeted the letter that Stephen Fitzgerald sent them in response. And he said, this is as bad or worse as having one's name associated with Dachau. Dachau was the first concentration camp built by the Nazis and really, really offensive that he made that offensive to the Jews, offensive to Planned Parenthood, offensive to the women going to Planned Parenthood, offensive to pretty much everybody. Um, Truly everyone. No one left unoffended. Right. So so the Kansas City Star interviewed him and was like, basically like, uh, so dude, did you mean what you said when you compared Planned Parenthood to the Nazis? And he's like, yeah. He's like, fuck yeah. Yeah, I did. They're both, And then he said, quote, they're both exterminating innocent human life. And then he added a comparison, also saying that the Planned Parenthood is sort of like the KKK. He goes, how about if I made a donation in your name to the Ku Klux Klan and publish it? If somebody made a donation to the KKK in your name and published it, how would you feel? What would you do? How would you react? Wouldn't it be controversial for you to deny that or denounce that? in the strongest possible terms. It's pretty controversial, don't you think? Okay, here's a question. What political candidate, what presidential candidate is the KKK supporting? Oh, Is it the same as this bitch? Good question. David Duke has definitely supported Trump and also supported our previous weenie, Steve King, in his comments. Feels Feels like people are confusing what group they're in. So that was a lot of racism to deal with in a very short period of time. So let's have a little palate cleanser and a break 
from all the negativity, and I want to highlight something positive that happened in the past week. Please do, Prachi. We never do that. I know. So Houston Representative Jessica Farrar, who's my new hero, has filed a satirical bill in Texas called A Man's Right to Know Act. And this bill mirrors the language of real Texas laws that have placed restrictions on abortion access. So what it basically does, and it's a satirical bill, but it basically fines men $100 for masturbating in a place that's not a woman's vagina <laughs> because it because if they do so, it's an act against the unborn child. Did you watch Legally Blonde? I have seen it, yes. Remember Elle Woods, the first thing she says that's good in a law school class is she's like, All masturbatory emissions where his sperm was clearly not seeking an egg could be termed reckless abandonment. I'm going to have to go back and watch Legally Blonde again. Sorry, no, I'm not. I didn't really like it. Anyway, here are some of the things that women are forced to do currently under Texas law. Um, they have to have a mandatory 24-hour consultation before obtaining the abortion procedure. They have to receive counseling that actually discourages them from getting an abortion. And they receive a booklet called A Woman's Right to Know that has like illustrations. And the whole idea is basically to make them feel guilty or give them like condescendingly tell them like, are you sure this is what you really want? When they're already, they've already made a decision. They're already at the center to want because they want to get an abortion. And then also outright banning abortions after 20 weeks even though, based on the idea that the fetus can feel pain at that time, even though that's not supported um, medically. So those are the existing laws, and it is parodying those. So the other things that this bill says, any guy seeking a vasectomy, Viagra prescription, or colonoscopy has to have that 24-hour waiting period between a consultation and actually getting the procedure prescription. They have to get a rectum exam with, quote, magnetic resonance imaging of the rectum, and then an illustrated booklet called A Man's Right to Know. Oh, and then doctors are allowed to refuse to fulfill any of these requests or, or even misinform patients according to their, quote, personal, moralistic, or religious beliefs. And that's molded after a recent bill that was introduced in Texas where doctors could effectively lie to their patients. Which we talked about. Which we talked about in a previous episode. Yeah. So predictably, Republicans were not amused by this bill. State Representative Tony Tinderholt, so one of Jessica Farrar's colleagues, he found it an embarrassment and said that it, quote, shows a lack of basic understanding of human biology, which I think is pretty ironic considering that in January, this guy introduced a bill called the Abolition of Abortion in Texas Act, which would have made abortions illegal and would imprison women and their providers for obtaining an abortion, even in the case of rape or incest. His logic for defending this bill was that it would be, quote, it would make women, quote, more personally responsible and consider the repercussions of the sexual relationship that they're going to have, which is a child. One thing I've learned, or at least that I've observed is that satire and humor is not a language that many Republicans speak.
And now our dick of the week is Trump Care, aka Ryan Care, aka the American Health Care Act, aka the Republicans' replacement to the Affordable Care Act, aka Obamacare Light, aka Obamacare Light. <laughs> so I want to talk about the Affordable Care Act first, which the goal w- was to give around the around 60 million uninsured Americans access to health care and then improve the benefits of health care for everyone who, who receives insurance. The Affordable Care Act does this in a couple of ways. Um, one is that it expanded Medicaid, which is a government-funded program that covers families that make less than $31,000 a year. Uh, but states have to opt in for the Medicaid expansion, and not every state has done that. So for everyone else who is not eligible under Medicaid, they actually would have to buy an insurance package that's available either through a state or federal insurance marketplace. And to make those options affordable, the Affordable Care Act offers tax credits to people who earn up to four times the federal poverty level. Um, And those credits could go either towards your monthly insurance premium or uh, you could declare them on your tax returns at the end of the year. But since the ACA went into effect, there's been about a net gain of 17 million Americans who didn't have insurance who now do have insurance. It, the The second thing that the ACA did was that it also aimed to make the marketplace more fair. So it requires employers with 50 or more employees to provide health insurance and then also requires more transparency on their paychecks. So now you should be able to see how much your employer is paying for your insurance coverage. And previously, insurance companies could raise prices or outright refuse to cover people who are sick or who are old, but the ACA puts limits on what insurance companies can charge them. So now they can't, currently they can't discriminate against you if you have pre-existing conditions or if you're elderly. And before the ACA, almost 20% of Americans were denied health care by insurance companies. So that's a that affects a large percent of the population. And a pre-existing condition, by the way, that's like anything. It could be anything. Yeah. I mean, like, it, de- it really depends on how the insurance company wants to define it. But like, for example, I have asthma, and that could have been seen as a pre-existing condition. Yeah. Being pregnant is a pre-existing condition. Right. Having... Any kind Which. of, like, mood disorder is often a pre-existing condition or being on, a, like, an antidepressant or something. And then the, another big protection that it offers is specifically for women. So according to the National Women's Law Center, there are 10 states that prohibit, like, gender-based price discrimination. But in at least 17 states, women aged around 25 paid between 26 and 100 percent more for insurance than men did. People say, like, oh, well, well, women have more health care needs than men do at that age, so they should be charged more. But you shouldn't be charged more for being a woman. That's like a, a woman tax. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, so the ACA has made it, has, has mandated that insurance companies do not charge women more. It also requires that they cover prescriptions like birth control and mental health care and other services that were previously optional for insurance companies to cover. How does it pay for all this? That's sort of the the trickier part is that— That's like the question of insurance. Right. That is so hard. So it really depends on all this expanded coverage and the lower costs. To offset that, it really depends on 
young and healthy people opting in to it because basically if young and healthy people don't opt into insur- into insurance, all the people who like are sick and really need it the most and have the highest costs are also the only people who are funding it. So to incentivize people to sign up for it, the Obama administration basically said, well, everyone is required to buy insurance if you make us above a certain amount of income. And it's not like you go to jail if you don't do it, but you're going to face a fine. So the ACA is a really ambitious, really complicated um, and comprehensive plan, but it's not perfect and it hasn't worked out perfectly either. For one, not enough young people are signing up for it, which then leads to higher costs and more volatility of insurance premiums. According to Mother Jones, the bronze plan, which is one of the plans that people can buy on the healthcare marketplace, that has really high deductibles. And the, the problem with the cheaper plans, though, is that they can really limit your access to what doctors and providers you can see. So, And, and then on top of all of that, it's caused some insurers to leave the marketplace. Um, but again, this is also partially how a competitive marketplace works. The other thing to note is that the states that didn't opt into the Medicaid expansion saw less of a decline in the rate of uninsured than the states that went for it. So basically, in the states that are using the ACA, are seeing significant improvements, even in really red states like West Virginia and Kentucky. Yeah, and one of the things is to help sell the Republican replacement, Donald Trump is going to Kentucky, even though Rand Paul doesn't like the replacement, and people in Kentucky kind of like Obamacare. Okay, so let's break down the American Health Care Act, which is the Republicans' replacement to the Affordable Care Act. So what we know now, first, it's ba- it's so similar to the Affordable Care Act in a, a way that I didn't think it would be, considering how much Republicans freaking hate the Affordable Care Act. So it keeps the provision that lets kids stay on their parents' insurance until they're 26. It continues to make insurers cover people with pre-existing conditions. It also prevents insurers from setting lifetime limits. Um, It keeps subsidies for insurance, but it changes the kind of subsidies that it gives. And it continues to cover people currently on Medicaid. So three major changes. First is the repeal of the individual mandate, which Republicans didn't like. So as premiums get more expensive, healthy people stop paying for it, which drive premiums up for everyone else. That's what the individual mandate was supposed to do. So the Republican replacement repeals this individual mandate and replaces it with a clause that's called continuous coverage that says if you lapse in coverage for a certain time, you have to pay a 30% premium for one year. So let's say, Prachi, your coverage lapses for one year, and then you, like— get sick for some reason and you want to sign up for insurance again, you have to pay this 30% premium for one year. But like, let's say I lapse in coverage for like 15 years. I also only have to pay it for one year. Like we have the same So, but isn't that premium. almost the same? I mean, that's like the same thing as an individual mandate, really. Kind it's still of a it, fine. It's a different. It's, it's a, a different. fine, but I think it's a fine that discourages people from signing up at all. Because right. it's like you can... Like if you I mean, it's a worse. It's a worse. It's just a worse solution. <laughs> so it's like if I think I'm a healthy person, I'm not going to sign up until I'm 40 when my health care is much more expensive. Then that fine is not going to apply to me. 
So, like, I'm not going to be contributing to the insurance system at all. Like, it keeps people right. out of the system rather than bringing them right, into it. Right, because if you're going to have to pay a fine either way, might as well stretch it out for as long as possible because then it has the least impact. Right. Exactly. And it's the same fine. So the second big change is in how the plan proposes to do subsidies. So in the Affordable Care Act, the subsidies were means-tested, and they were structured so that the people with the least money got the most help. So if you earned a certain salary, you only had to pay, like, a percentage of that salary. So it, was it like, scaled correctly. But the Republicans' plan shifts to a flat tax credit that's only based on age, and the tax credit ranges from $2,000, which is the lowest tax credit, to $4,000, which is the highest. And it— goes up. So in your 20s, you can get a $2,000 tax credit, and then it goes up every decade. So when you reach 60 years old, you can get the maximum tax credit, which is $4,000. This is just not enough money. So it means that people cannot afford plans. and Or you can get a plan, but it does and the plan that you qualify for it doesn't even like look like health insurance because you get so few benefits. And it also benefits people who have more money than people who don't. Oh, yeah. This exclusively hurts the people who don't have money. You qualify for these subsidies if you make, like, under $75,000 a year, and but the amount of credit you get doesn't change beyond that. This type of subsidy works best for younger people in urban environments because younger people have cheaper health care costs, and they also—urban environments, health care, you also have more choice, and it's cheaper— so, like, this ends wow. up affecting the most seriously old rural Americans, which is Trump's base. Like, those are the people who suffer from this the most. And then the third thing is there's, like, a huge tax cut. It, re- it repeals, like, billions of dollars in taxes, this plan. In particular, the 3.8% investment tax that's only for families that make over— $250,000 a year or individuals that make over $125,000 a year. The people who need the most help. Literally, they're the only people who get something from this. So it also slashes Medicaid. It continues the Medicaid expansion for the next couple of years, but then it's going to start to limit the number of people who qualify for Medicaid, and it's also going to limit the amount that the federal government spends on Medicaid, which would make it much more expensive for states to continue to offer the same coverage that they do. So Everyone is probably aware, I don't know if you listen to this podcast, maybe you are, that the Congressional Budget Office released a report on the replacement, which is supposed to, like, say what it's going to do. And it found that basically it's a disaster in terms of coverage. Currently, 9.5% of Americans under the age of 65 are uninsured. And the CBO found that by 2026, under this plan, that percentage would double to 18.6%. So it found basically that 52 million people would be uninsured in 2026 under this bill compared with a projected 28 million people under the Affordable Care Act. It also found that premiums would increase by 15 to 20 percent in 2018 and 2019, which is crazy and would mean that people would just stop signing up for insurance likely or a lot of people. And then it would eventually decrease for younger people but spike for older low-income adults. The other thing that this plan does, it Right now, there's a limit of the amount of, like, how much more an insurance company can charge older people. They can charge three times more than a younger person. And then this increases that to five times more. Okay, so two things. First, 
the Republicans that are defending it, like Paul Ryan, are saying, yeah, you have a choice. You can opt out of health insurance. You can't, like, opt out of health. (laughs) That's an insane thing to say people can opt out of. Hey, on the positive side, they'll be able to buy more cell phones, according to Jason Chaffetz. (laughs) As if the people who are opting out of, like, quote, opting out of health insurance insurance have enough money to buy an iPhone. (laughs) It's crazy. So some Republicans distanced themselves from the bill after they saw how crappy it was, like Maine Republican Senator Susan Collins. But the question that I have, Prachi, is who the F was this bill for? Like, it's not for Republicans. It's just kind of shittier Obamacare. Right. This bill is about 10 years in the making. And what do they have to show for it? I mean, yeah, they've because hated. Republicans have hated yeah. the Affordable Care Act and it's, since its inception uh, from the beginning of Obama's presidency. They've had a decade to come up with a bigger, a better idea. And this is way worse. Obje- Solidly it's objectively worse. <laughs> bi- like, like, CBO is not partisan. Yeah. It's ob- and this is objectively economically worse for Americans. So now joining us to explain a little bit more about the ACA and the new healthcare bill that's being proposed is Dr. Kavita Patel, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and a primary care doctor at Johns Hopkins. She also served as a senior aide to Valerie Jarrett in the Obama administration and as a director of policy for the Office of Intergovernmental Affairs and Public Engagement in the White House. Dr. Patel, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So first of all, can you just explain to us quickly how the U.S. I mean, this is such a big question, but how the healthcare and insurance system works in the United States? It, it, is it designed to give patients the best holistic care, or what? Well, so we started in the United States, honestly, with insurance mostly so that people could offer healthcare as a benefit when they offered people employment. So our system was perfectly designed for probably, I would say, 60 years ago when we were coming out of you know World War II and we were trying to figure out how to invigorate the economy and how to offer people great benefits. And we just really have not caught up with what our society needs today. And that's how health insurance was structured. You're asking like where and why are we, the you know, way we are with health care And I think part of what's wrong with our society is that we've put so much money and attention into being sick that we don't even know how to be healthy anymore. And when I hear people call our system a health system, it's kind of ironic. You know, it's, I really do believe we're just promoting a sickness system. And, and that's really, I think what, what we've got today. This is another really big grand question. Um, But how has the Affordable Care Act Uh, done? Has it been a success or a failure, something in between? I think it was a success in bringing millions of people into health care and health access that never had it before or didn't have good access before. I think it was a failure in, in the messaging. I think we did a very poor job. So where I think we had, you know, just dismal, dismal performance 
was that people still had no idea what the Affordable Care Act was. And and if you and still don't actually, if you take polls or if you look at kind of you know opinion polls. So I I think overall it was success, but there were aspects that were really challenges and real failures. And I unfortunately this movement to repeal and replace, I think is directly related to the fact that a lot of people have no idea what the Affordable Care Act has done for them. Honestly, that was poor messaging and poor communication. Well, so that, I mean, I feel like that's part of the new Republicans replacement plan. If people don't know what the Affordable Care Act is, they don't know how similar, but kind of like light this new plan is. (laughs) Do you have any explanation for why these changes were proposed? Like, they just feel like worse versions. So I think that, you know, the reason it looks shocking to most people is because you're kind of like, wow, this feels like it came out of nowhere because we haven't had a conversation about it. If you'll remember with the Affordable Care Act, you may may or may not remember President Obama was doing like a meeting in the White House every week with stakeholders, doctors and patients, employers, you know, insurance companies, you name it. And this felt like, wait, what, you know, I woke up and like, what? You put a law together? What? What's this? So (laughs) I think that's why it's surprising. But the ideas in there have been ideas that Republicans have talked about for several decades. And to be honest with you, they're not good ideas. And that's why we haven't done them before. The American public is confused. But if you talk to some of the Republicans, they're confused as to why there was no conversation about a lot of these issues. Yeah. So I'm wondering about that. I've been sort of surprised by the backlash against both this bill and the idea of repealing um, the Affordable Care Act, especially because one of the major platforms that Trump ran on was the promise to repeal the Affordable Care Act. So everyone knew that this was coming, but now suddenly we're seeing a huge outpouring of support for the Affordable Care Act, even amongst Republicans. Does that surprise you at all? So I'm not entirely surprised. I don't think I don't think we're dealing with like Republicans sitting in like a back room, you know, smoking a bunch of cigarettes in the dark going, okay, what are we going to do now? I think what really happens is they go home and like they come to people come to DC and they do like their thing in the Capitol, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Then they go home and they get smacked with like a dose of reality. And I think the dose of reality is that honestly, it's, it's, it's what I see every day when I'm practicing in clinical medicine. The dose of reality is that healthcare is complicated and it's expensive, and people really are thankful that they have health insurance. And I think those people are all speaking out. And by the way, a lot of those people that are going to lose their health care, maybe they realize it, maybe they don't, are people who voted for Donald Trump. So I think what Republicans are are hearing or saying is reflected in what their constituents are telling them. So how, so one of the provisions in the Affordable Care Act was that it ended discriminatory practices against old people, sick people with pre-existing conditions, and also women. How is the new proposed bill going to affect those different populations of people? The way the Affordable Care Act really protected against discrimination was in, in was twofold. One, it was through not allowing insurance companies basically to charge more money for being old or sicker. The second way it really prevented, I think, the worst discrimination was this whole kind of pre-existing condition issue. So the repeal and replacement uh, provisions actually keep that ban on pre-existing condition, but they did away with that financial protection that I talked about. And so insurance companies now can charge more if you're older or sicker, and they will. And the other thing that insurance companies can do is they can ask you, 
if you've ever gone without health insurance in the last several years. And if you have, they actually have the right to charge you more money for no reason. So it's something called continuous coverage. And who who are the people that aren't going to have money to buy health insurance? They're going to be people of color. They're going to be people with less means. And they're going to be older people. We know that from the evidence in the past. Right. So that's one of my questions. It feels like, especially with the continuous coverage thing, where which, if I understand it correctly, you have to pay like a 30% more premiums for just one year. And it feels like that is the kind of thing that would discourage people from getting insurance at all. And it would just kind of keep them off the market or out of the market. And so my question is, what happens then? Like, do we get a death spiral? Can you explain what the, what so would every, Yeah, people talk a lot about death spirals because basically if you set up the insurance system where the only motivation people have to buy insurance is only when they're sick, then what happens is you buy insurance only when you're sick. So I'm like the perfect person for an insurance company because they spend no money on me, but I pay, you know, thousands of dollars every month in healthcare insurance. So a death spiral occurs when almost everybody that comes into health insurance is then using insurance to its max and utilizing healthcare. And then because they're utilizing a lot of healthcare, the actual cost of giving care goes up because the insurance companies have to raise how much they charge because they're only insuring patients that are sick and they don't have healthy people in there to spread the risk financially. And then the next year, the premiums go up even more. And then if people still don't buy until they're sick, and then you can see where the spiral occurs. It just, until you break that cycle and get healthy people buying health insurance, you just keep having sick people coming in. One of the greatest things about the ACA for for a lot of women I know has been the coverage of birth control and the end of discriminatory practices against women from insurance companies where they charge women more for certain services. What's going to happen to reproductive rights, to birth control, to those issues under the new bill? So in it's, it's a little kind of, you know, Washington, D.C., like parliamentary procedure wonkish, but there are aspects of the old, you know, kind of, of the Affordable Care Act that will stick around and then there are things that will go away. Planned Parenthood will go away. Medicaid paying for contraception will probably go away. And then what's not clear is the private insurance market. Like I get my health insurance through Blue Cross Blue Shield. My private insurance and their coverage of contraception, it should stay in place based on the replacement plan, but it's not entirely clear. So here's the truth as a woman, go get your birth control now because honestly, nobody knows if all of this passes, if you'll be able to get it in three months. And that's the truth. So just to finish up, um, I want to move away from the replacement plan for a second. And I heard you speak on another interview before, and you were talking about how physicians could take it into their own hands um, with regard to lowering costs for patients and lowering costs for care. Is there a way to work outside this, I, I don't know, this insurance system? We can help to make sure that what you have to pay out of pocket is as low as possible. We can also make sure we're working with, you know, hospitals and labs and facilities that actually care about how you're doing and not just about how much money you'll pay. And 
Honestly, I give a lot of my patients advice that if they can't pay even their out-of-pocket costs, a lot of people don't understand some of the tips and tricks of the healthcare system. Believe it or not, you can actually call and bargain and you can say, you know, I know my out-of-pocket responsibility is the following. I only have like $100 in my bank account. That's all I can afford today. Would you let me pay that much and, you know, be done? And most of the time, hospitals and doctors' offices will say, sure, no problem. Honestly, I worked on the Affordable Care Act because I felt like for the first time in our country, in our history, we had a president, Barack Obama, who also agreed with us that healthcare was a human right and that everybody should have it. And so I just tell doctors who kind of whine and complain to me, like, you know, you're, you're pretty lucky. We have an obligation to make it a little bit easier in society to go through this crazy system. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about that we didn't discuss? I think we need to demand better out of our system and we need to demand better out of our government. And we shouldn't release the pressure on our elected officials until they answer, why does it have to be this way? And it should be better. And that's both Democrats and Republicans. And we're going to go into midterm elections. We're going to go into another presidential cycle. And I want everybody to kind of ask for this to be better and and ask for us to to do more for our patients and our families. Thank you so much, Dr. Patel. This was a great and scary conversation. <laughs> That's good. I'm living up to my <laughs> reputation. Great and scary. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> now it's time for How to Handle the Dicks the part of the show where we talk about how we're coping on a day-to-day basis with a very stressful time where our birth control is not going to be paid for anymore. Prachi, are you handling the dicks? Uh, no, I'm not. I'm not. Are you feeling sad? I'm not feeling sad. I feel like I'm struggling to keep up with everything. I just feel a little bit exhausted. I feel like very scatterbrained. I feel so scatterbrained. All the, the time. That's amazing because you never look it. I definitely look it. Like, I am no. in work today. Like, I have no makeup on. My hair is in a bun. I don't even think I washed it yesterday. Come and on. I'm wearing, like, my college sweatshirt that probably has a stain on it. I'm a mess. Like, I look like a mess. And I feel like a mess. <laughs> and I'm sorry for anyone who's hoping, who is hoping for to be inspired today. But... I'm not Come I'm not on. a vision of inspiration this is that I so. usually, that I clearly usually am. <laughs> you usually are. You are today. It's not fair. I'm going to say mine and then you can say and, and then, then I'll try to think about something And then you can see if that positive. inspires you. <laughs> this isn't new for me, but I have been watching The Sopranos from the beginning to the end since it's a very long show. I'm, there's seven seasons. I'm currently in season 6A, which is the second from the last. So things are getting very dark. It's just a joy. (laughs) Everyone in it, all the wise guys, are at once sociopaths and also so lovable. Prachi, have you ever seen this show? I've (laughs) never seen the show as I have not seen most shows. I am really behind on TV show watching Well, I'm like 10 years behind on The Sopranos, so that's okay. I'm (laughs) I'm even more behind on it. Honestly, I'll probably never watch it. I'm sorry, but— If you don't want to, you don't want to. I get addicted to TV shows, and so if it's a long show, I'm going to lose about, you know, three months of my life to it. That's literally (laughs) what I just said that I did. 
I did yeah, that. Yeah, but no, but Joanna, like last time I was addicted to a show like that was Lost and I was up at like 4 a.m. in my bed watching it on my TV. I did that with Lost And made on my phone. When but, I watched Lost, it was like, when I, I think it was when I was a teen and I was on a trip with my family and we had a portable DVD player and I watched Lost on the portable <laughs> DVD player for the entire trip. But what was, what, were you watching it when it's currently on the air? Yeah, I think I was, like, catching up with it, like, one season behind. Okay, see, that's the way to do it, though. Right. Because I did it, like, 10 years later. Oh, and then and you never I have was, to stop. I watched the finale, and I was so angry, but I had nobody to go to. No no sympathetic ears it's 10 true. years after the finale. People had already dealt with it. But I <laughs> was just starting to, and I had they to had go on, like, Slate.com and read all the anger, angry takes about the finale. Like, and, but, like, in the archives. Yeah, but in the archives. And— yeah, it was it was upsetting. And so ever since then I just I don't do it. If I'm not currently watching a show and it's a long show, I can't I can't engage with it. Yeah, right. Over. I'm lucky because I'm watching The Sopranos with my boyfriend, so I have someone to discuss it with. And also a lot of people that I know are watching it right now too and I'm kind of there's somebody mm-hmm. who's watching it who I know who is on who's one episode ahead of me just like by chance. And I'm finding there's like a really good solid Sopranos community. That's the, great. I'm, ha- I'm happy for you for finding the Sopranos community to help you through this difficult time. It's really helping a lot. <laughs> um, the only thing that I – so this weekend I went up to Rhode Island and our car ended up breaking down. And then Mandana, who helps produce this podcast, was driving up to Rhode Island at the same exact time and saved us. That's Insane so, of Mandana to do. I know. It was it's like insanely nice. I'm going to name my firstborn child after her. Um, cool. I think that that's, I think that's, I think fair. that's what she deserves. I, th- I think so too. I probably will She's too. also a wonderful person. So, yeah. and I like the name Mandana. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Big Time Dicks. And thank you so much for Dr. Kavita Patel. Please rate and review us on iTunes. I know you don't, maybe people don't listen to to these credits because they sound like credits, but actually please do rate and review us on iTunes because it helps other people find the podcast. This show is produced by Levi Sharp with editorial oversight by Kate Dries. Mondana Mofiti is our executive director of audio. We featured music by Stuart Wood and Aaron Leader, and this episode was mixed by Brad Fisher. Got a big time dick you want to tell us about? Send a voice note or email to bigtimedicks at jezebel.com or tweet at Jezebel using the hashtag bigtimedicks. We'll see you next Friday, and who knows what the world will look like then. Yeah.